From The Daily Northwestern, I'm Jordan Manji. And I'm Alex Chun. This is The Weekly, a podcast that breaks down our top headlines each week. Here's what's been happening in the headlines. In campus news, President Morton Shapiro announced in an email this Thursday he will be concluding his tenure on August 31st, 2022. University spokesman John Yates told The Daily in February that Shapiro's contract was already scheduled to end in 2022. The announcement comes after months of students repeatedly calling on Shapiro to resign as part of the Northwestern Community Not Cops protests. Meanwhile in Evanston, the Century 12 movie theater has closed permanently after shutting its doors last March when the pandemic began. In other city news, Evanston Township High School has announced it will reopen for hybrid learning in early April. The decision comes after D202 announced a return to in-person instruction two weeks prior. Under the current plan, students will attend one session of in-person classes every other week. Those are some of our top headlines. Now, we're bringing you behind the scenes with daily staffers to dive deeper into some of this week's news. First up, on campus, select floors in both Elder and Sargent residential halls were put under a modified quarantine after cases rose. And in city news... Indigenous climate activists in Illinois continue to protest the expansion of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which runs from the Bakken region of North Dakota to Patoka, Illinois. Stay with us to hear directly from the reporters and editors who covered some of the Daily's top stories. Earlier this week, select floors in both Elder Residential Hall and Sargent Residential Hall were both put under modified quarantine. For Sargent, the quarantine lifted last Saturday. Elders was lifted on Wednesday. Here to tell us more about this is assistant campus editor Anusha Thapa. Anusha, what exactly does a modified quarantine look like? Right. So the modified quarantine, and I should stress this, it was only for particular floors on the particular dorm. So for Sergeant, that was the second floor. And for Elder, that was the first floor. What that looks like is that the students received an email. The students of that particular floor received an email telling them that they're not allowed to go out of their rooms except for essential activity and they defined essential activity as um, you know using the restroom or going down to the dining hall to pick up their meals they couldn't dine in they could only pick up their meals and also to go and get tested to continue doing their um, color and um, Navica testing those were really the only things that um, they were permitted to do however um, there wasn't any real enforcement mechanism. It was just sort of a notice telling them to not do these activities um, without real consequences if they didn't adhere to those guidelines. So this is the first time a protocol like this has been put in place at Northwestern so far. What was the reasoning behind the decision? Right. Okay. So the reasoning for the quarantine, as um, Luke Figora said, was that the cases in the dorms had reached a certain threshold and they wanted to make sure that The dorm activity, so, you know, students using the restrooms, uh, students hanging out in the lounge, wasn't contributing to an increase in cases. And Luke Figueroa really wanted to stress that um, that's our university's chief risk and compliance officer, Luke Figueroa, really wanted to stress that it wasn't necessarily because there was community transmission or because the resident halls were resulting in increased cases, but because he thinks that Students had formed friend groups and people within the same friend group live in the same floor and they're the, they're the, a certain friend group that tests positive and suddenly, you know, they needed to take that action as a result of seeing this positivity rate. As for why the, the quarantine was lifted, that's not sure. 
How did students living on these floors react? Right.、Um, well, I talked to one student,、um, and she says that it wasn't really surprising to her, which I found interesting. She said that you know there are groups of students on her floor that were being really irresponsible, and for her, the main concern was that despite being in the floor that was quarantined. Um, and sergeant, she had no idea how many of her students in that floor, how many of your peers were actually sick, so they weren't really told what the case positivity rate was or what、um, exactly prompted this quarantine to happen. And so, as a result of that, a few students told us that you know it was kind of surprising to suddenly go into quarantine without really any kind of context. And they were really concerned about this sort of lack of communication because, after receiving that initial email, they they didn't really have any kind of follow up during the quarantine period. They didn't know what was happening, and so they felt、um, they said that it was really you know provoking their anxieties with regard to COVID because it was kind of being on high alert, but they didn't really know、um, where things were going. Did you speak with anyone else? I also managed to talk to faculty and residents、um, at Elder Hall, and Professor Lenagon was really concerned with transparency in general. You know, she was talking about how the university's COVID tracker doesn't really tell us, you know, what percent of these cases are off campus, what percent of these cases are on campus, and in like a broader context, I think she was concerned about not having enough information、um, to really. Know how to feel about the current cases on campus、um, as a faculty in residence, but she also stressed that you know it makes sense. The university has certain privacy concerns; they're、um, worried for the privacy of their students. So I think that was also an issue that both the students and the faculty in residence were talking about, and just overall communication and transparency. Anusha, thanks so much for chatting with us. Off campus, Illinois Indigenous rights activists, tribal governments, and environmentalist groups have joined a national call for the Biden administration to shut down the Dakota Access Pipeline. After the Illinois Commerce Commission approved a project to double its capacity last October, here to tell us more about this is City Reporter Will Clark. Will, can you talk a bit about the Dakota Access Pipeline and what an expansion of it would mean? Yeah, so. The Dakota Access Pipeline—it's basically a pipeline that runs between the Bakken region of North Dakota and it ends in Patoka, Illinois. So the Bakken region is like a region where a lot of oil and natural gases are being like、um, hydraulically fractured. They're extracted through fracking, basically, and then they're shipped to a variety of regions. But the Dakota Access Pipeline is one of the largest pipelines leaving that region.、Um, and when it arrives in Patoka, Illinois, it's then sent to. A variety of locations to be refined. So some of those refineries are in Illinois. Some of them are in the Gulf Coast. And an expansion basically means.、Um, so last year, October of 2020, the Illinois Commerce Commission approved an expansion project for the Dakota Access Pipeline, which basically means that、um, some pumping stations and equipment would be added along the pipeline, which would allow it to increase its capacity from the current capacity, which is 570,000 barrels of oil per day. And that would be potentially increased to 1.1 million barrels. It wouldn't include like additions to the physical pipeline itself. It would just kind of allow for like more oil to be transported through the pipeline. Who were some of the people or groups protesting the pipeline and its expansion? I think the biggest group has been the Standing Rock Nation, which historically, since the pipe the pipeline was、um, proposed in 2014 and then built 
kind of between 2016 and 17, and it it doesn't pass through the Standing Rock Nation, but it, it passes directly above. So it passes under Lake Oahe, which is basically, it's a reservoir of the, the Missouri River. The Missouri River provides water for the Standing Rock Nation, as well as a few other nations that are downstream of the river. So I believe the Yankton Sioux Nation, the Oglala Sioux Nation, and the Cheyenne River Sioux Nation. So all of those um, tribal governments have been pretty vocal in opposition to the pipeline, really, ever since it was built, because if it were to leak, it would it would threaten their water supply, as well as like their fisheries, their economy, and then also like sacred and cultural sites that are near the river or near Lake Oahe. And then in Illinois specifically, some of the groups that have opposed the pipeline have been environmentalist groups, as well as indigenous rights groups. So I spoke with um, Richard Stuckey, who is a representative of an organization called SOIL, which stands for Save Our Illinois Land. And then he was also a board member of the Sierra Club. They were concerned about the indigenous rights aspect of it, but they were also concerned about the climate change aspect of it, because by, you know, producing fossil fuels and moving fossil fuels, the pipeline allows for more greenhouse gas emissions to continue to be emitted. I think that they're also worried about the potential ecological impacts of like a oil spill or a leakage of the pipeline. In Illinois specifically, what are some of the concerns surrounding the pipeline and its potential expansion? I know that a lot of farmers and people involved in the agricultural industry are concerned because a potential leak would, you know, it would threaten crops as well as like the livelihoods of those people. And then I know that the building process for the pipeline itself, which happened in like 2016 and 17, was also subject to concern just because it was like digging up land. So I think that in Illinois, specifically, the threats to agriculture are definitely like a big concern. But then I also think just the climate change concern is pretty universal. And then for indigenous rights, Chicago has one of the largest like urban indigenous populations of any city um, in the United States. So it's definitely been a center of like activism on that front. I know that some of the people I spoke to in Chicago had organized certain like protests against banks and corporations that have been like involved in financing or have been invested in the Dakota Access Pipeline. And they've been kind of pressuring them to divest or stop investing in some of these fossil fuel projects or projects that threaten indigenous rights. One sort of counter argument to these protests is the idea that pipeline expansion creates jobs. Can you talk about that a bit? From what I understand, there's been a pretty strong like union support for the pipeline expansion, specifically in Illinois. So in the case that was before the Illinois Commerce Commission, one of the groups that was very strongly supporting expansion was the Laborers International Union of North America. And they represent like construction workers in the United States and Canada. And so I spoke with Randy Harris, who is a representative of that union. And he basically kind of highlighted that like for them, like they support green infrastructure and they do support like climate change mitigation in some certain instances. But they also think that like any sort of transition to green energy needs to like include workers and it needs to be done in a way that doesn't deprive working people of livelihoods. And I think that for them, they feel like since we're still using oil for cars, still using oil for pharmaceuticals, plastics, like so many things, and we're not going to like stop immediately, they feel like we, it doesn't make sense to cut off all oil extraction all at once. That's so interesting. The last thing I want to touch on is that President Biden revoked the Keystone Pipeline permit recently, but hasn't revoked this one. In terms of the potential future of the pipeline, what did some of the people you spoke to say they hoped for in terms of immediate actions? 
So one of the big things with the Biden administration is like the letter that those five tribal governments wrote to him. It was on January 19th that they sent that letter. And they basically asked him because right now in 2020, a federal judge revoked the the, the pipeline's permit to pass under Lake Oahe until the Army Corps of Engineers fulfills like a full environmental impact review. So technically, the pipeline doesn't actually have a legal right to cross beneath Lake Oahe right now, but it does continue to like, like oil is flowing through the pipeline right now. And so they basically wrote a letter and asked Biden to pause the flow of oil until that environmental impact statement is released, which I think is supposed to happen towards the end of 2021. But I think their end goal is that they would like the pipeline just completely shut down. I spoke with Tara Hauska, who is like an indigenous rights activist in Minnesota, and she told me that she has been on like calls with the Biden administration and that they are, I think they're hopeful. Like the past administration really wasn't open to like negotiating at all with indigenous rights groups or environmental groups. But the Biden administration definitely has like been open to negotiation in some ways, but they still haven't made any sort of like concrete promises about revoking pipeline permits or shutting down the Dakota Access Pipeline or like Line 3 in Minnesota, which is like also something people are kind of concerned about. Will, thanks so much for chatting with us today. From the Daily Northwestern, I'm Jordan Manji. And I'm Alex Chung. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Weekly. This episode was reported on by Nushia Thapa, Will Clark, Jordan Manji, and myself. This episode was produced by both Jordan Manji and myself. I'm the audio editor of The Daily. The digital managing editors are Molly Lubers and Olivia Yarvis. The editor-in-chief is Sneha Day.